as uh, Shelley read that text to us just then, you, you may have thought to yourself, uh, haven't we read this passage before? And if you did think that, it's because only two weeks ago we heard a very similar story from chapter 24. Uh, we heard another story of David sparing Saul's life. And the two stories are very similar. In both, David is hiding out in the desert of Ziph. Saul is told about it by the Ziphites. And he sets out to kill him, accompanied by 3,000 elite soldiers, in order to try to engage and defeat David and his band of 600 unmerry men. In both stories, David creeps up on Saul, right up to him without Saul being aware of it. In both stories, David's companions entreat him, encourage him, try to to get him to take advantage of this golden opportunity to kill Saul once and for all, seeing as Saul is a constant threat on his life. Now, um, if you're joining us for the first time today, um, here's here's the back story. Um, Saul was indeed anointed many years earlier as the king of Israel. The prophet Samuel anointed him with oil in obedience to a revelation from the Lord and God filled Saul in power with his Holy Spirit. Now, um, Saul's early career as king, it certainly had some highlights, but quite early on he started going bad listening to what others wanted rather than what God wanted. And after repeated failures to obey, the Lord rejected him as king. Young David was then anointed by the prophet Samuel, again in response to an explicit revelation from God, and he was anointed as Saul's replacement. At this point in the story, all of that is many years earlier. And almost since that happened, though, Saul has been trying to kill David. Trying to kill him, driven by envy, insecurity, and by a feverish desire to be in control. Well, back to our two stories of David sparing Saul's life. Um, in, In both stories... David could have killed King Saul and everyone around him would have understood entirely. Indeed, probably the nation of Israel who who loved David and sang about him in their songs. Um, They loved the way that that, that he he led them in their military campaigns. Um, They probably would have accepted the change of leadership without any grumbling. In fact, they probably would have accepted it with celebration. But he doesn't. In both stories, David gives the same reason for not killing Saul. He says, King Saul is the Lord's anointed. No one can raise a hand against him without incurring guilt. And in both stories, similarities, but in both stories, David gathers evidence to show Saul, specific evidence to show him, hey, I could have killed you, but I didn't kill you. And by way of that testimony, please believe that I'm no threat to you, and I never have been. In both stories, the evidence that David gathers is symbolic. In in the first story, if you remember, he cuts off the hem of Saul's robe, 
um, inadvertently symbolic. Um, D- David is ashamed of the symbolism as soon as he realizes it, but inadvertently symbolic of the transfer of authority from Saul to himself. And in this story, two items are taken or borrowed temporarily, and they are symbolic. Um, a spear and a water jug. One takes life, the other gives life. A- and in both stories, David acts mercifully, repaying evil with good. You see, both stories are actually about loving an enemy. And both stories are about forgiveness. David loves Saul. And of course, I'm not telling you anything about his feelings. Probably hated the sight of him. But no, no, David loved Saul in the proper sense of his actions being about protecting Saul's welfare. He treats Saul's welfare as important, as, as, as important as his own. David loves Saul and he forgives Saul, laying down his legal right to repayment in kind. And both stories, what's really important is that both stories are testimony, therefore, to David's fitness for leadership. He, he, he's merciful, he repays evil with good, he doesn't take revenge, he treats the other's welfare as important. This guy is fit to be king. And both stories conclude not only with us recognizing that, but Saul himself recognizing that. Both stories finish essentially with the same conclusion, one in which Saul himself says it. Yes, I'm acting stupidly and sinfully. You will one day surely be king. And you're going to do a wonderful job. Well, um, there are the similarities. There are some significant differences. And um, the most significant difference really is that in the first story, what we see is a remarkable miracle of coincidence. Saul goes into a cave in the middle of the day to relieve himself. And wouldn't you know it, by some huge improbable chance, it's the same cave that David and his men are hiding in. What an astonishing coincidence. But not this time round. This time round, it's no coincidence at all. This time round, David carefully engineers the whole thing. It's a premeditated stunt. Um, the whole thing is designed to broadcast his mercy to as wide as possible an audience as possible. And at the start, David sends out spies to determine the exact location of Saul's camp. Then he goes himself. And after arriving, he does some careful reconnaissance. He pinpoints Saul's position at the center of a circular encampment. Next step, David asks for volunteers to go with him. Only one of the two people he asked was willing. I mean, obviously, this is going to be an incredibly risky stunt. 3,000 SAS soldiers, special Saul service, um, the elite, a circular encampment, Saul's right in the middle. We can presume that a large number of them have been assigned guard duty. Your mission, if you choose to accept it. Well, actually, David doesn't reveal the mission. He doesn't reveal his plan to his one brave volunteer who's going with him. Abishai undoubtedly thought that they were going on a seek and destroy mission. And if David had revealed to Abishai 
that actually they were going in to collect a spear and a water bottle without recourse to self-defense if they get caught. Abishai, I think, probably would have told David exactly what he could do with his mission. In this second story, David is merciful, but he's engineered the whole thing and he advertises himself on a hillside proclaiming to Saul and his 3,000 men what he has done. He uses the spear to make a point. In his weakness, he is more powerful, for he is merciful and God is with him. And God is with him. In the first story, we see the hand of God in the provision of a miracle of coincidence. In the second story, we see the hand of God in the fact that David and Abishai are indeed able to infiltrate the camp, get to Saul at the center, have a conversation there once they've arrived, grab a spear and a water jug from beside Saul's head, and then retreat all the way back outside of the camp, all without detection. How is that possible? Well, it was possible because the Lord had his hand in this. He put everybody into a deep, deep sleep. God is in this. It is from the Lord. And given uh, that we have two very similar stories about David sparing Saul's life, um, the points that they have in common, the things that the narrator wants us to learn, there's a lot of overlap. And of course, above all, is this point of David's fitness for leadership. And his fitness for leadership is based squarely on his trust in the Lord. His ability to trust the Lord. That the Lord will defend his cause as he defends God's cause. David knows he doesn't need to defend himself. God's got his back. Saul, in contrast, never got this. Oh, sure, he believed in God. Believed he was there, but he never got faith. That's what it is. Faith is, 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 is trusting God's word and believing what God has to say and living differently in response. Saul never got that. And the wasted time and the wasted resources, evident in, in simply this story alone, apart from the other stories, it's lucky for Saul, really. It's lucky for him that he's not accountable to an appropriations committee, isn't it? I mean, the wasted resources, it's just part of the testimony of how costly it is for ourselves and for those around us when we fail to trust Jesus with our lives. Well, I, I don't need to rehearse things I said last week or the week before, even if they're relevant to this story. There are many good points we could make. But for this week, I think I'll just make one... Um, it's, um, it, it, it's something that's a little bit different from the first story. And really the point that I want us to focus on is made by David in verses 10 and 11. And in those verses, I think David reveals to us in this story something fresh, something not previously stated, something about why it is that he continues to refuse to kill Saul, his enemy. Verses uh, 10 and 11, David says, As surely as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come, or he will die, or he'll go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. And I, I think what David is doing is David is teaching us something significant 
about thorns in the flesh. As we heard from our New Testament reading uh, this morning, the Apostle Paul suffered long and hard with a thorn in his flesh. Now, Paul doesn't tell us what that thorn in his flesh was. And if the Bible doesn't tell us, then we don't need to know. Doesn't step, stop us from guessing, however, does it? Um, and, and some assume that Paul's thorn in the flesh was some kind of temptation that he found excruciatingly difficult to resist. Well, for various reasons, I think that's very unlikely. Another possibility is that the thorn in Paul's flesh was some kind of disabling health condition that caused him pain, humiliation, or both. I think that's a much more likely explanation, but probably still not correct. Academics note that in the very rare instances of this phrase, a thorn in the flesh being used elsewhere, it always refers to people. And in fact, that actually fits the context pretty well because Paul is mentioning stuff like insults and persecutions. Most likely then, Paul's thorn in the flesh is a person or a group of people and indeed probably the very same ones he's writing to, the Christians in the church in Corinth a group of Christians with whom he had a tortuously difficult relationship. So let's assume, for the sake of today's sermon, that a thorn in the flesh is a relationship with someone that is tortuous, and yet, for one reason or another, you just can't escape. Taking the phrase in that light, then Saul was most definitely a thorn in David's flesh for many, many years. And um, I would say that my experience of life and my experience in pastoral ministry in particular tells me that at any one time, a very large proportion of any congregation is going to be suffering with a thorn in their flesh. Uh, it could be an employer who is a complete pain in the neck but for any number of reasons, resigning or reassignment is just not an option. It could be an ex-husband or an ex-wife who, because of the children, you just can't avoid and they just seem to love to just make your life hell. It could be an employee who is a liability to the morale of your team. Yet you know if you fired them, you'd be up for unlawful dismissal. Because amazingly, as it sounds, you, you can't fire people for being insubordinate. Well, sometimes it's a close family member who is dearly loved. And yet a constant burden or worry or drain on your resources. Often it's an in-law. Hell seems to have a great supply of in-laws. Sister-in-law, brother-in-law, mother-in-law, father-in-law. Um, <clears throat> nothing wrong with my in-laws, I hasten to add. <laughs> but somehow in-laws seem to make particularly good thorns in the flesh. You just can't escape them. And why are they a messenger from Satan? Well, um, 
I think it's because the thorns in the flesh, one of the ways in which they act is they just hit you at that delicate spot. They just know exactly which buttons to press, don't they? They're the kind of people who function in your life as, as to give you the opportunity to say, I would think myself such a holy person if it wasn't for them in my life. Because when they say such and such, I can't believe what I do in response. Oh, it's so shaming and bad. I'm just so fallen. I'm just like everybody else. Um, interesting to note that, that most of the thorns in the flesh I can think of in the Bible belong to the people of God. Well, uh, some years ago, I was visiting a country town in Wheatbelt, Western Australia. I was working with the Fine Edge Performing Arts Company at the time. And Tim uh, uh, and Nikki Bowles, they were my bosses. And we were staying with a family. And the family we were staying with way out deep into the Wheatbelt, they were describing the Anglican priest who had just been sent to their church. And they considered their Anglican priest, it's not an unusual phenomenon, they considered their Anglican priest to be a disaster. He was the kind of priest who was himself a faithless man, a teacher of heresy, and a blind guide. And I remember the turn of phrase they used in describing how they prayed for him. They said, we're asking the Lord to improve or remove. And since then, I have often had opportunity uh, to lead people in improve or remove prayers with respect to their thorns in the flesh. But of course, we, have, we really we have to be very, very careful how we pray such prayers, don't we? We do, because we know we're not called to judge. We're not called to utter curses over people's lives. But rather, we are called to pray for other people's welfare, to bless Especially to bless those who curse. Especially to love those who hate us. Yet, and nevertheless, remembering those parameters, it is possible to pray by way of a blessing that folk might be either improved or removed. Dear Lord God, wouldn't it be wonderful if my boss got an irresistible job offer in the Bahamas? <laughs> well, <clears throat> whether it be family work or church, governors or politicians or kings or queens, we, we have to trust that God has brought us together for a reason. There is a purpose in allowing that thorn in the flesh. There is a purpose in the arrangement. And in this story, as in the first story, David is aware of that purpose. And the way that he articulates that purpose confuses me because David reveals himself, much to my own personal horror, to be a sacramentalist. And I've struggled with this with David, not understanding it. In fact, you might remember if you were with us two weeks ago, I confessed that his words were confusing to me. And maybe it's confusing to you because actually David keeps on, assisting, keeps on insisting that you can't harm the Lord's anointed, whereas we know he's not the Lord's anointed. And David knows that too. The Lord has rejected him as king. And we know that David has, that knows that the Lord has rejected him as king. Otherwise, his own anointing as king would have made no sense at all. But David, in both stories, insists 
a total of four times that Saul is the Lord's anointed and remains the Lord's anointed. Um, How did he get anointed anyway? Well, it was by way of a sacrament. Now, a sacrament is a physical thing with a spiritual meaning. It is something that is commanded by the Lord and is accompanied by the promises of the Lord. A fourfold definition of a sacrament. And there are lots of sacraments in the Old Testament, including the sacrament of circumcision and the sacrament of the Passover. Saul, the prophet, his ministry was one of word and prayer and sacrament. When he poured oil on Saul's head and then on David's head, that was a sacrament. It was a physical thing with a spiritual meaning, commanded by the Lord, accompanied by the Lord's promises, that he would fill them with his Holy Spirit and lead them as he led his people. The New Testament, uh, of course, gives us only two sacraments. Uh, for us, the new, the new covenant people of God, we have the sacrament of baptism in water and the sacrament of uh, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. And David clearly expects, clearly respects the sacrament of anointing as irreversible. For David, God does not change his mind or take back his promises. He doesn't do that. If he gives authority, it stays with the one he gave authority to, even if they turn and are in rebellion. So Saul's kingly authority is real kingly authority, even though Saul is no longer working in cooperative obedience to God. Paul uh, says something similar and to me equally confusing when he talks on the doctrine of of, of election in Romans 11. And he says there that God's gifts and call are irrevocable. irrevocable. He's not taking them back. And what Paul means is that the nation of Israel, although they are unbelieving with respect to Jesus, their Messiah, yet and nevertheless, God still has a place for them in his plans. And this is because of God's faithfulness to his promises and to his call. David knows that, as paradoxical as it sounds to us, God, David knows that God has plans for Saul as king, even though he has rejected him as king. Because God is sovereign and faithful, he can work through a king in opposition as easily as he can work through a king in obedient cooperation. So then, David recognizes Saul as a thorn in the flesh, not to him, but in fact to the whole nation of Israel. But he also recognizes him to be a God-given thorn in the flesh. And therefore, despite his great desire to be rid of it and the huge cost that this thorn is costing him, he resists the temptation to remove the thorn himself. That's his point. It's not my job to take away this thorn. It's from God. Something else that we should note um, from both stories, and I think it's important to note that there's no reconciliation. There's no reconciliation between David and Saul. 
In both stories, David forgives Saul, irrespective, of course, of how he feels. He just forgives him. Um, we don't know how David feels. On, on the other hand, we know how Saul feels. His, his language goes all lovey-dovey straight at once. You know, in, in contrast you know, to, to, to David, Saul has been the recipient. He knows of undeserved grace, of undeserved kindness, and he does feel the love. And his language to David is loving, repeatedly referring to him as my son, promising him no further harm, no further harm. Please return, come back to me. I won't harm you again, return into my household. David does feel the love, he's the recipient of grace. But at the end of both stories, David and Saul go their separate ways. And at the end of this story, at the end of chapter 26, David and Saul go their separate ways, never to meet again. Why? Why is there no reconciliation? Well, quite simply, because David knows that Saul is untrustworthy. He can't be trusted. He flies into these rages. Sometimes people get confused about this difference between forgiveness and reconciliation, but actually they're not the same thing. It's confusing because most of the time when we do forgive someone, it's for the purpose of reconciliation, in order that a relationship that was damaged may now be restored. Sometimes, um, sometimes a wife will be told that she must forgive her husband. That's what she's told. What she hears is, I must forgive my husband and take him back. No, actually, that's not what she's being told. Forgiveness is obligatory. We are commanded to forgive just as we have been forgiven. A decision of our will laying down our legal right to repayment in kind. No, no, no other options, no choice. Forgiveness is obligatory. Reconciliation, well, we discern that along the way as to what is best. If you don't trust someone who has hurt you in the past, if you don't trust them to not hurt you in the future, there's no need to be reconciled to them. David here forgives Saul but there is no reconciliation, and that's quite right and appropriate in this situation. Saul can't be trusted, and so he's not trusted. But he will have to be endured, insofar as he continues to be king. And as king, a thorn in David's side and a thorn in many others' flesh too. Speaking of uh, thorns in the flesh... When Donald Trump was elected as President of the United States of America last year, there were, as you may well remember, there were widespread protests. Huge numbers of Americans took to the streets of their cities and, and said, this is not our president. And I have to confess that when I heard the news of Donald Trump's election, I felt sick in my tummy too. But I also remember the words of a colleague of mine, another Anglican minister, who um, saw things from a different angle. In fact, he was hoping that Donald Trump would get, uh, would get elected, not because he thought that Donald Trump was a particularly good or capable man, but because he wasn't a politician. And he felt that actually, well, here's something new. Perhaps God can use Donald Trump, the self-proclaimed non-politician, in a way that might be new and fresh and different to to 
to um, you know, a very capable career politician such as Hillary Clinton. I'm not sure if I agree with his reasoning. I'm not asking you to agree with his reasoning. But I am suggesting that we, like my friend, that we should see things through the eyes of faith. Whatever God's reasoning may be, we can be absolutely sure that Donald Trump is God's choice for President of the United States and that God can use him. That isn't a statement of faith in Donald Trump. Far from it. But rather it is a statement about the power, grace and loving mercy of our God. Now, if we can take that leap with respect to Trump, we ought to be able to do it with everybody else. Near or far, whoever we might feel is a thorn in our flesh. What what do we do when we wake up to the fact that God has allowed a thorn in our flesh? Well, here are some things that we get from the passage this morning. Be patient. Exercise restraint. Actually thank God for that person in our prayers. Pray for that person. Bless that person. Repay evil with good. Respect any lawful authority God has given them. And always be merciful. For God will show mercy to the one who is merciful. Resist the temptation to plunge the spear in. And know for sure that one day God will give you that spear. On that day, resist the temptation to plunge in the spear. Because we need to remember that their life too is precious. Trust God to establish what's right in his own time, for none of us can flee the judgment of God. And we need to remember that when we act in such way, we are training ourselves in what it means to be a great leader in God's sight. For God says to us, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen.